You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. This is the rest of the interview that I did with Jim Bloom recently about his career. We talked a little bit specifically about Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Empire Strikes Back. This is the rest of the story up until around 1980 or so. I hope you enjoy. Was the production associate job your first gig in the movie world? So I was uh, I was a, a student at UC Berkeley, and I was in my freshman year trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, as many you know eighteen and nineteen year olds are at the time. My brother was going to school at Antioch College in Ohio, which had a really robust work study program, and he also wanted to work on movies as well. And he had spent a summer working summer, but one of the semesters working on Andromeda Strain. And he said to me once, you know, we were talking, he said, why don't you make a movie? And so he sent me his little eight millimeter Bolex camera. And in spring semester of my freshman year, I made a short film with some other kids in a physics for non-majors class at Cal called Mr. Physics Meets the Frisbee. And it was it was just a little comedy about some, you know, some obscure physics PhD doctorate who, you know, decides that he's going to figure out how, how the Frisbee works and decides to invent one. And he goes out to Sproul Plaza where all the great Frisbee players used to be and, you know, to show off his, his Frisbee and he gets out there and he finds out that someone else has invented it. And so despondent, he walks toward the Campanile, you know, which is sort of like the Venice Campanile on the Cal campus. One of the icons of the Cal campus to go, go up the top to jump off and kill himself. And all along, he's figuring out what impact he'll hit the concrete and how fast he'll be going. You know, that was all the physical stuff that was built into the movie, into this. And I sort of fell in love with the process. And then during my, excuse me, my sophomore year at Cal, whenever I saw TV crews or documentary crews, I would always offer to help for free, which some people said get lost. And other times other people would say, sure. And so I started, you know, like, you know, carrying cases and, you know, camera equipment and lighting equipment and going off on these little small mini shoots, helping documentarians from all over the world who were shooting at Cal. And and I started looking for work to see if, you know, if this is something I wanted to do. I thought, well, let's try and find a job in the movie business. I got very lucky that I, I after many months, I wrangled a meeting with a director named John Cordy. I don't know if you know John. He directed the Diary of Jane Pittman and a few uh, a few other features, and mostly a lot of TV movies of the week. One called Farewell to Manzanar, which was about the Japanese internment camps. It was made years later. It was made in uh, summer '75, 
I met John and John said, I haven't got anything for you. But he said, you know, there's this guy named George Lucas and he's making a movie called American Graffiti this summer over in San Rafael. Why don't you call him? So I went, okay. And I drove home and picked up the phone and called and, and, and much to my shock, you know, the woman who answered the phone was a woman named Bunny Alsop, who I later worked, I worked with on Graffiti and Empire and, and she then later worked for me when I was producing. And I said I was looking for work. And she said, oh, we're looking for somebody. Why don't you come over tomorrow and interview? And I was like, okay. You know, I was like shocked that they would say that. And I drove from Berkeley to San Rafael the next day. And I went into a meeting right away with, with Gary Kurtz and George. And they liked me. And I think I all said, said the magic words, which were all work for free. You know, which I, well, fortunately, I mean, I was able to do that at the time. And I remember Gary saying, oh, well, that's OK. We'll pay you $10 a day. And I said, no, no, you don't have to. He said, no, no, we'll pay you $10 a day. And I said, OK. And he said, great. Well, you start tomorrow. And my job on graffiti was I was responsible for all of the extra cars. So all of the background, all of the background cars you see running up and down the street and, you know, driving and pulling in and out and, you know, filling up all you know, the, the, sort of the milieu of that moment. You know, that was that was me. You know, I had to find them and cast them and hire them. And, you know, along with the, the daytime production group, they used to, you know, help me with, the, you know, what time and where to show up for the cars because we were shooting nights. But uh, I every night I was up and down, running up and down the street, setting background action with all the cars. It was great. So it was, it was the first feature I ever got to work on, which was just amazing. And that was really my start in the movie business. And I worked with a, a guy who was the second assistant director who after graffiti and because we both worked on graffiti, he went on to work on the conversation, which was shot. You know, we finished graffiti in August. I went off to Ohio to work a, on a documentary at Antioch with my brother, who was the cameraman and another guy who was the director, preschool children and the personalities that preschool teachers Head Start teachers would be likely to encounter in a preschool group of three and four year olds. So we shot all these three and four year olds running around nursery school every morning, and it was really cute. It was fun. And after that, I then I came back, and the second ID became the first ID. And what was interesting is that is that Francis worked out a deal with the Directors Guild to start a company called the Directors Company, and it was a company that was. Francis Peter Bogdanovich and Billy Friedkin. And as part of it, he was able to hire two assistant director trainees from the San Francisco Bay Area. And I got one of the spots. And the other spot went to a, a, another young guy named Randy Carter, who came out of ACT, who also had a really good career and you know, wound up being the first AD on Steinfeld for many years you know, years later. And so Randy and I were the two assistant director trainees. And what was sort of unique about it is that we we didn't have to go through the traditional training program through the director skill, which is back then you had to take a you know, psychological aptitude test to see if you had the right psychological qualities to become a, uh, you know, assistant director. And uh, which was good because who knows if I would have ever passed that. You know, they were looking for a particular kind of people back then. And uh, so we we went to work on the conversation. So Randy and I were essentially there was a first AD, and we were really the two seconds 
even though we were trainees. So that was my second feature. So it was like, you know, right out of the bed. Yeah, really. It's like, you know, work with George on one movie. And I knew who George was because I had seen THX and I knew he what a, ta- what a talented guy he was. And I also, uh, you know, met Haskell Wexler, you know, what a treat that was. And then worked on many other movies with him after that, too, and worked on the conversation. And then when the conversation was over, my brother had gotten a job working with Bob Altman on a picture called Thieves Like Us, which was was shooting down in Jackson, Mississippi. I don't know if you've ever seen Thieves. It was a really good movie. They needed another production assistant. And he got me a gig on the movie and I flew down to Jackson, Mississippi and spent, you know, January, February, March, early April in Jackson working on Thieves Like Us, working with the second AD, you know, doing PA work, you know, everything from grip and electric to production to driving to all sorts of stuff. That was a great film because I got to work with with Altman and see how he made movies. The movie business is very addictive. And it's particularly addictive to, you know, who people who may have some slight tendency toward, you know, attention deficit disorder. Not that I did. I could always concentrate. But at the same time, you know, what great fun to be 19, 20 years old. I mean, I was 19 when I got the the job on graffiti. You know, then I turned 20 in September and I was 20. I was working on the conversation and working with Bob Altman. And it was like, wow, this is great fun. This is just you know, it's really exciting. It's interesting. It's, you know, I really started to learn about more about motion pictures and making movies and what went into all of it. And then when Thieves Like Us was over, I came back and they were shooting the Streets of San Francisco TV show. And it was their second season. And I approached the production manager, who was a guy named Dick Gallagher, who I later hired to come work with me at ILM. And you know, as, as always things are, it's like, you know, you say this magic words, which is, hey, I'm local. Oh, I mean, you know, in the back of his mind is a good production manager would think it was, well, we don't have to pay you, you know, per diem and living expense. I don't have to put you up in a hotel room and I can hire you and pay you an assistant director trainee work. And you've already worked on three features. So you've got some experience. It's not like you're green. So he said, great, you start next week and you're on full time. And I was just letting him know. I just want, I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't want to work on television. I, I just wanted to let him know I was available in case he needed some help on any given days or, you know, you know, come in for two days or three days here or whatever. And he said, well, you're on full time. So I went to work on streets and I, you know, the rationale behind it was, well, I'm a trainee and at least. If nothing else, I can go through, get through my days as a trainee to become eligible as a, to work as a second assistant director. So I went to work on streets for two seasons. I, you know, the season, I was there from season of 73, 74, and then again, 74, 75. And when I'd finished the second season, I we had worked on 46 episodes and to work with Michael Douglas was a treat. And, and but to work with Carl Malden, you know, was something that became, more apparent to me after I had begun to work with him to better understand, you know, who he was as an actor in in the movie business and all the different movies that he'd worked on and all the different directors and what a great talent he was. It was just, you know, Carl was, you know, a great character and just just a real treat. And I was also got to meet, you know, a different director just about every week that we were working with and worked with a lot of a lot of great actors as well. You know, Carl was friendly with a lot of people, and Quinn Martin, who was the executive producer, who I only met once, 
but he had lots of, you know, actors and actresses who would come up and do guest appearing roles. So, for example, I got to work with uh, Sam Jaffe, who who I had seen my whole life as Gunga Din, watching what was, you know, WOR, or, you know, the Channel 9 Saturday afternoon movie special when Gunga Din would come on with Gregory Peck and I forget the other actor's name. And, you know, and Jaffe played Gunga Din. And when I meet Sam Jaffe, it was like, wow, this is this is amazing. And then another time I got to work with Ida Lupino, who, you know, herself was a director and, you know, I knew who she was and had seen some of her movies and that was a great treat and work with Nick Nolte when he was a very young actor and other people like that. And at the time, Dick Donner, who later directed, you know, all the Superman movies and other things like that, he came up and did a show. And, and what was funny about that is that he and I were talking and he went out with my mother's sister. When they were both in high school, they all grew up in New Rochelle together outside of New York City, you know, and, and, you know, I mentioned it to her and she said, oh, Dickie Donenberg, you know, he changed his name to Dick Donner, you know, it used to be, you know, different, but that was, I guess he became an actor and that was his stage name before he became a director. So it was really, uh, it was really a treat to to do all that and to sort of very different than the feature business because in TV, you're knocking out you know, 20, 25 setups a day. It's really quick, 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 quick. You know, you have to be very organized, very fast. And it, it was very interesting, you know, experience for me early on. Between the first season and the second season, the woman who was Coppola's associate producer was a woman named Mona Skager, got a phone call from MGM and Sam Peckinpah's producer that Sam was coming to San Francisco to scout locations for a feature that he wanted to do. And she said, I'll call Jim Bloom. He'll take care of you. So I went, oh, okay. And I, I got a phone call. And all of a sudden, I'm scouting locations with Sam Peckinpah showing him around. San Francisco and a lot of the places I took him worked out great. They all wound up in the movie. You know, I showed him some really interesting places. And I don't know, have you ever seen The, the Killer Elite? The final scene takes place Amongst these on a moth, a naval mothball fleet in Susun Bay, and I took him up there and arranged to show him, you know, the fleet and go. And he just sort of fell in love with it as a, a backdrop for, you know, the, the final battle scene between the, that's you know, I don't even remember the movie, the CIA guys and the ninjas and you know whatever the thrust of the movie was. It was all kind of very interesting. And so, you know, but the funny thing about Sam is that Sam had a had an alcohol problem. And, you know, our location scouting consisted of, you know, look at a location, go to a bar, look at a location, go to a bar, look at a location, stop at a bar. You know, so, you know, by the, the end of the day, he was, you know, pretty drunk. But he Sam was, you know, a pretty amazing character, amazing character. And. So, you know, time went by. They finally got the, the picture launched. And, you know, a year later that I got a phone call saying, we want you to come work on the movie. And so right after being a, a trainee, I got hired as a, a second second in the Killer Elite, you know, working. And it was my first Hollywood movie. And so that in itself is a real experience because I'd worked sort of on all these, you know, more or less independent productions with great directors before that shooting on location. And then all of a sudden, this very traditional Hollywood movie came up to San Francisco. And that in itself was a real eye opener for me to kind of work on a studio picture, which I hadn't done before. 
and you know just all that it's a whole kind of different set of personalities and people and egos and you know it's just very interesting so we shot in san francisco for i remember eight or nine weeks and then we went down and shot on on at mgm which is now sony pictures but it was the old mgm studio in culver city and i'd never shot on a lot before so that was like wow this is like you know this is what making movies on the sound stages is all about and we shot down there for you know three or four weeks so that was uh that was really quite something and then I'm, t- I'm t- trying to remember the chronology here. And I think after that, and John Cordy was doing Farewell to Manzanar, which was a TV movie of the week that I worked on as the second AD. And then following that, I got a phone call to come work with Hal Ashby on Bound for Glory as a second second, which Bound for Glory was, was a big picture. You know, lots of, you know, Lots of, you know, people, moving parts, period stuff, you know, big, big movie trains, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, worked on that for a while. Uh, Didn't go with them to L.A., but stopped. And then after that, got a call to go work on Close Encounters, where I met Stephen. And all along through this time, I had kept in touch with George and Gary, you know, just to touch bases and say hello or come meet them and have lunch or whatever. And on Close Encounters, which is sort of interesting, Close Encounters is such a big movie. And the personalities were so, again, you know, kind of big, just among the production crew, that the first AD, who was this guy named Chuck Myers, who I'd worked with on Graffiti, and then again on The Conversation, and then on Bound for Glory. He was the first on the conversation Bound for Glory. He became the first on Close Encounters and asked me to come with him as the key second. And Close Encounters is just huge, just a huge movie. We started in Gillette, Wyoming, and then went to Mobile, Alabama. And Mobile was, you know, Mobile in the summertime. It was, you know, it was just hard, you know, 90 degrees, 90% humidity, you know, just an awful sort of working environment to be doing exteriors or interiors with all the heat or, you know, shooting in the dirigible hangar where we shot. Just a really tough, tough experience. And that was really my first exposure to visual effects because Doug Trumbull had brought the motion control equipment machine, was doing all the visual effects for Close Encounters. So I got to work with him and I learned about making movies and visual effects. While we were shooting, it was a very complicated shoot at times because of the continuity of the movie, the way it had to be photographed, not necessarily in continuity order, but more in visual effects orders from starting wide, 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 and then going wide, less wide, medium, tight, tight, close. And and so there was a lot of you know matching going on because every day we were working with anywhere from 50 to 150 extras all running around this box canyon with spaceships landing and you know, ETs walking off the mothership and the lighting cues and all this sort of thing. And the, there were also some funny personalities between Vilmos, who's the director of photography, and his gaffer, who was brought on by the studio. We had every light that was available in Hollywood down in Alabama with us. And they, none of the other pictures could get, get arcs because we had them all. And we had arcs and HMIs, and it, it was just a huge, huge production effort. And Vilmos and the gaffer, a guy named Earl Gilbert, didn't get along. And being around camera when you were setting stuff up with Stephen and Vilmos was Earl was like a little 
cantankerous. And I tend to be a pretty diplomatic fellow. And Chuck was a little less patient than I was with all these. And he finally said, oh, he said, Bloom, you take care of this. I, you, you call the role and I'll take care of all the other stuff, which was fine because the, the, the some of the background stuff was very complicated. And, you know, it was almost easier for me to do that. And in doing that, I sort of became the, the first AD on the movie in a way, because I was always next to camera coordinating stuff. And while we were shooting, uh, George came down to visit Stephen. So he got to see me working in that capacity. And and that was in 76. So it was nice to see George again. And then after Close Encounters, you know, it's been so long, I'm going to forget everything. Close Encounters and then went back to work on Coming Home and got to work with Hal Ashby again, which was, a, Hal was just, Hal's a great director and a, and a, and a really lovely human being, just a great person. You know, sometimes in movie making, you find great directors who is people, well, you know, okay. And then other times you find great directors who are also really good people, you know, big hearts, you know, genuine, empathetic individuals. And Hal was one of those guys. So it was a treat to work with him. And not only that, the subject matter was kind of perfect, you know, for the, this kid from Berkeley, which I was, you know, to go work on that Vietnam War type movie and to work with you know, Jane Fonda and John Voight and, you know, Bruce Dern. It was just like, wow, what a treat. What a, you know, good movie. And, and it was a small, intimate story and working in the hospital with all these ex-Vietnam War vets. It was 1975 or no, 1977 when we, we, we made the picture. And, and then after that, it's, I had then become eligible to become a first AD. I didn't think it would happen right away because it rarely does. I was only 24. And I got a phone call from Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood, who I had met on Close Encounters. And Matthew and Hal were very successful screenwriters. And they had written, you know, Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars and MacArthur and Sugarland Express. And, you know, they were very hot and up-and-coming team. And Matt, they wrote a script called Corvette Summer that they set up at MGM. And Matthew needed a first AD. And he called me and he said, would you be my first assistant? And it was like, sure. You know, it's like, how could I say no? It was like, you know, to get a jump from second to first at age 24 is, you know, I think I was one of the youngest first ADs, you know, at the time, if if not, you know, probably not ever, but, you know, at the time. And so I went to work on Corvette Summer and got to work with, you know, with Mark Hamill which who I hadn't worked with Mark before then, but he had just finished Star Wars. And so worked with uh, worked with Mark on Corvette Summer. And after Corvette Summer, Phil Kaufman asked me to come work with him on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I did that, which was great. And, you know, again, Phil's another one of these, you know, you know, great guys, great, good direct, great director, and a, a, really a lovely human being. It was one of the nicest movie experiences I think I ever had working with Phil just because of his, his style in, in working. And we had a, it was a, a, a great shoot. And again, a, a really fun movie, you know, well suited, <laughs> well suited to my sensibilities, you know, about pods taking over the real people, you know, it was you know, back in the, I guess the end of the Nixon era or, you know, between, you know, between Nixon, Carter and Reagan, period or you know or, or Ford I, anyway I'm getting my presidents mixed up but fit my sensibility very well and then as 
body snatcher was over, Gary Kurtz called and said, you know, because I kept up with all of them. Gary said, I want you to come work for me as my assistant on the Empire Strikes Back. And it was like, I was like, okay, you know, but you know, it was interesting. I said to him, I said, Gary, I said, you know, I really wanted to, I really would like to try and become a director and, and stop working in production. And he said, well, this will only help you be a better director if you come work for me. And I thought about it and I went, yep, you're right. And so I, I went to work and I was hired as the assistant producer. And my initial job was to move ILM, Van Nuys, up to San Francisco and turn it into a permanent facility. And so I spent months doing that and hiring, you know, all the guys, you know, all the, you know, the names of, you know, these famous visual effects artists. And I knew a little bit about visual effects from my work on Close Encounters, so it wasn't completely new to me. And so I set up ILM. Gary wanted me to come over to London, in particular to help run the Norwegian unit. And so I hired a guy named Dick Gallagher, who I'd worked with on the streets of San Francisco, who was the production manager to come run ILM. And Dick came in and he sort of took over when I went to London in like November of, uh, you know, 78, you know, shooting began in, in Norway in February of 79. And I was with the Norwegian unit, you know, which was supposed to be three weeks that turned into nine weeks up on the glacier in Finsa. You know, first with the first unit and then with the second unit, making sure that we got all of the work that we needed, you know, for that that particular sequence. And then but, you know, before that, I was able to, you know, hire and, you know, bring, you know, all these great visual effects guys in like, you know, Richard Edling and Dennis Muren and Ken Ralston and, you know, all these guys who, you know, later became, you know, the, the big names in the visual effects industry and turn ILM into this like, great ongoing facility and, and, you know, got to work with Joe Johnston and, you know, lots of other, you know, people as well. I think with, you know, with Brian Johnson who came over and uh, it was just a great opportunity all these great guys working at, at ILM at the time. Cause I think, you know, Empire is my favorite movie of all of the star Wars movies and, you know, getting to work with Kirshner and everyone else. Let me backstep with you. Um, you know, on Corbett Summer, Matthew called me to work as the first AD, and I had met Matthew because he and Hal did some uncredited script work on Close Encounters. And I first met them when they were doing that work. And uh, then later, they were down in Mobile, Alabama, because they were both the first two to walk off the mothership on camera. They were the two lost World War II like bomber pilots who, you know, got kidnapped by the, the aliens and they were the first two who wandered off. So I got to meet them then. And I guess then that was when Matthew got to, you know, see me working as an assistant director and, you know, probably helped him decide that, oh, well, you know, Jim might be a good first AD for me to come work on Corvette Summer. So that's that's where I and and to this day I'm still very friendly with both of them. I live in Point Reyes Station. We moved out here about a year ago and in Inverness, which is ten minutes away, is where Matthew lives, and I still talk to him every couple of weeks and you know, I don't see him as much now as I'd like to because of the pandemic, but we used to see each other all the time. You know, I've been very, you know, been good friends for a long, long time. You know, and I tried to produce some movies that Matthew wanted to direct and it's kind of a small circle of film people up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we all know each other pretty well. Anyway, so I worked on Empire, and then when Norway was over, Gary 
was not happy with the way things were going back at ILM. So he said, I want you to go home and go run ILM. So I went back to ILM and went went in to help with Dick. And after I was there for a while, Dick said, I'm not enjoying this. I, you know, I'm a live action guy, not a visual effects guy. I don't have a, you know, this is not my thing. So I'm going to take off. So I just sort of stepped in and took over. You know, we sort of finished up Empire. It was a huge, huge effort, but we were able to do it. Toward the end of the production, Gary came to me and said, I'd like to offer you an associate producer credit. And I went, oh, and the other associate producer was a guy named Robert Watts who had worked on Star Wars who had become a close friend of mine. And I said, well, if it's okay with Robert, I'd be happy to do it. I didn't want to tread on his toes. And Robert said yes. And so my title changed from assistant producer to associate producer. So I was in charge of all of the post-production, ILM, post-production sound, you know, everything. Post-production editorial, you know, it all sort of flowed through through me and my office. And I was, you know, again, I was very, you know, I was 1980. I was 27, you know, turning 28, 27 and 80 when the picture came out in May of 80, I think. Yeah, that's about right. So I was still, a, you know, still a young guy. And when that was over, I stayed on and then went to work on on Jedi and became a co-producer on Jedi. After Jedi, Hal and Matthew went to go do a picture called The Grid that we never made, but it was a great time travel movie. A lot of the elements of which showed up in the first Terminator, which was really interesting because it was about people from the future coming back to our present you know, to solve a problem before they go back to the future again. And so there were a lot of the qualities of the Terminator that kind of showed up. It would still make a great movie, you know, and I still joke with, with Hal and Matthew that, they, you know, let's go out and set it up again. Because it was just a great, great story about, you know, four characters who come back, come from the future to the present. But like you make a wrong turn on the freeway, so you wind up here and somebody else winds up there. In time travel, when you, something goes slightly awry, you know, one person came down in 1955 and somebody else came down in 1965 and somebody else came down in 75. And then, you know, the last person came down in 1980. And it's all about these three characters trying to get themselves back together to figure out how to get back to the future, you know, where they all had their lives. So it's, it's really a great script. And one of the magazines, forgetting maybe it was Senate Fantastique, could have been it did a whole article, a whole issue on the grid. And we we hired to work on it, Ralph McQuarrie and Sid Mead and a, another guy named Peter Lord. We had the, we had the most unbelievable concept work that was done through what the, the props and the vehicles and the future looked like. It was just like eye popping, but we were, the production company was the lad company and they had just made the right stuff. And when it came out, it did really poorly and they ran out of money and we had to find a partner because they couldn't afford the whole ticket, which was like $14 million at the time, you know, 19, this is 1983, 84 and uh, 83, 84 and 14 million was too, too rich for them. And so we went looking for other partners and it's like, it's like your classic producing story of, you know, what to and what not to do as a producer that you learn along the way. And I was, you know, this would have been my first movie as a producer per se, sole producer. And 
Spielberg loved the movie and he took it to Universal and said, you should go make this movie. And we brought it to Universal and we had meetings with Lou Wasserman and Sid Scheinberg about partnering with, with Laddie to make the picture. And I think maybe the budget at that point was like 16 million because there were a lot of visual effects in it and stuff that had never been done before. But we had all this great concept art and a great script, and we were interviewing all these great actors to be in it, like you know Mel Gibson and Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer and uh, Glenn Close, and you know this is they were all sort of at back then. This is they were all starting their careers, you know, and just beginning to break out, and had you know interest from quite a few of them about working in the movie. But true to form, Universal was like, well, we can't do it for sixteen, but if you can get the budget down to fourteen, we'll do it. It's like if I knew then what I knew now, I would have said, okay, we'll do it. You know, I should have just learned the lessons that I had learned earlier in my career, you know, about sometimes with the student, you know, or what I also learned later in my career when I went to work at the studio, which is that, you know, a studio will say 14, the budget 16, and they'll go to their financing people and they're going to put in 18 to 20 to cover themselves to make the movie. And but I said no, and so we we never made the film. Unfortunately, we went to other places and other people. We went to HBO because they were just starting up, and they weren't interested, and uh, so we didn't get the picture made. But after that, Hal had written a script called Warning Sign, which is a really good movie, and I don't know if you've seen it lately or seen it at all. But it's very pandemic related because it's all about a accident in a gene splicing laboratory in rural Utah, where the local community thinks you're involved in agrogenetics, but they're actually in one lab doing germ warfare. And the bug gets out and people start to get sick and they close the lab because they don't have an antidote. And the people on the outside don't know what they're doing, but are trying to break in to rescue all their loved ones. And then the people on the inside are getting sick and the ones who aren't getting sick are trying to break out. And the government shows up and they can't. They need to let the disease run its course because otherwise, if the disease gets out, the whole world will get infected. And the idea the idea behind this, this genetically engineered disease was that it infects the rage center of the brain so that your enemy kills themselves. You don't have to kill them. That was the they, that was the, the thrust behind it. And it's it's actually it's a it's 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 a it's a real rocket ride. It's a good movie. And it was with Sam Waterston and Kathleen Quinlan and Yatha Kodo and Richard Dysart and Jeffrey Demon. Dean Cundy was the director of photography. Henry Bumstead was the production designer who had done Hitchcock movies and George Roy Hill movies and was a great production. You know, I, I, you know, my effort as the producer was to surround a first time director with great technical help to, you know, make the picture look great. And so Bums, Bumstead, his nickname is Bummy, and also worked with Clint Eastwood, who's the designer. The editor was a guy named Bob Lawrence, who'd won an Academy Award working with Kubrick on Spartacus. You know, we had this great technical team. Alan Splett was the sound designer. who won an Academy Award for Amadeus. And the soundtrack is just fantastic it's just you know you watch the movie now you can you can you know buy it or rent it on amazon and you know watch it in the dark and turn up the sound and the soundtrack is like whoa it's like really eerie and spooky and you know i mean the 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 film has its faults unfortunately but 
we got caught between a regime change at 20th Century Fox, who had greenlit the picture, and the president of Fox at the time was a guy named Joe Rosan. And uh, like two weeks before we went into into principal photography, he was fired, and he was replaced by Larry Gordon. And soon after Larry left, Barry Diller came in with Scott Rudin and another producer whose name I'm forgetting at the moment. But they sort of took over the studio. And we became an orphan child. We became a liability. You know, when studios change regimes and you've got a film in the middle of production, it, it doesn't serve a new regime well to put their money and efforts behind someone else's picture because there's far more downside than there is upside. It's much easier to say, not my movie, you know, and just let it go and spend no money marketing it. That's essentially what happened. We came out a year later. They spent, you know, less than a million dollars on advertising and marketing. And the picture opened in what at the time were called the dog days of August, like on August 8th, you know, in, in like very few cities. And the movie didn't do well. We got a very good review from Richard Schickel at Time Magazine. He really liked it. And but it the movie sort of came and died because nobody heard about it. But people see it now, and it's, it's it actually has pretty good you know I hear it has pretty good reviews on on Amazon. And uh, a group uh, did a DVD re-release. I forget that their name out of uh, Portland, Oregon, just last year or you know, a couple of few years ago in 2018 2019, they did a re-release of, of the movie on DVD. And I think it's it's doing pretty well. And then when the pandemic hit, I tried to get the folks at Amazon interested in it again to see if they could do something because it was not, you know, it was very similar to 28 Days Later and that's Soderbergh movie about uh, contagion. Yeah. And had they put a little press behind it, I'm sure a lot of people would have watched it because it was particularly pandemic related. You know, all that, you know, you know, unfortunately about a disease, but just like turn on the news. And the thing that was interesting is that we made the movie in 85 and it was all about gene engineering. And at the time, everybody was talking about that the pandemic was, you know, oh, it was a secret lab in, you know, in Wuhan, China, that the bug got out, you know, from the, and they were dealing with And this is exactly what the movie was about. Exactly. But we had made it 35 years earlier. And it's a it's a it's a pretty good pretty good looking film. It's a lot of fun. But Hal did a really good job. It's like, you know, sit down, put your seatbelt on, and away you go. The movie, you know, you're not wasting time anywhere. And Kathleen Quinlan delivered a wonderful performance. She was just great as the heroine in distress. And Sam Waterston, you know, plays this, you know, slightly nerdy, intelligent small town cop who wants to become a lawyer. And Yafit Kodo. Is the you know the government you know the government guy you know comes in to like cordon off the you know the building and let everybody die inside. And, you know people say, oh, I saw that movie, I really loved it. It's like oh, you and my mother. You know nobody you know when it came out, few people saw it, but it was it really is. I watched it again, you know, years later, and I really really enjoyed seeing it again. Hal, uh, I thought Hal did a good job, and it's unfortunate the movie didn't get a bigger place. I mean, some of it's a little can- and it was also one of the first zombie movies as well. You know, because that's what happens is that these people get infected and they, they they get sick, they fall asleep. You know, you think they're dead and they wake up and they're like, you know, they're they're kind of they become zombieish, going around, you know, killing everybody. So it was it was it was pretty wild.
And then after after that, I tried to get a few pictures made as a producer, which is you know hard to do. Worked on worked with a bunch of lots of different directors on different things. I worked with Warren Beatty on Dick Tracy for a while. I worked with George Miller, the you know Australian George Miller, trying to get something. You know, I was actually he wanted me to work on Witches of Eastwick with him, but that didn't quite work out. They hired the president of the studio's brother to produce that instead of me, which, you know, which is, you know, that's, those are the ways of Hollywood. And I uh, worked with Volker Schlondorf, who was a great director who did the tin drum, uh, a picture that we, we unfortunately, you know, a lot of movie making is you begin, you go out and you work on stuff that never quite makes it to the screen. But working with Volker was a great treat. I mean, he was what, a, what an artist he was. The Tin Drum is just a wonderful movie. But it was a tough picture because it was about an apostate from the Mormon church. You know, it gets gets killed, you know, because he sort of takes up arms and, you know, takes his family as hostage when they're trying to come after him. And I didn't, didn't quite make that. Then I worked on a movie with, a, a Jillian Armstrong called Fires Within, and that was a, it was quite it was quite a good movie, and uh, you know very uh, you know very interesting with Jimmy Smith and uh, Greta Skaki, and I'm going to forget the name of the Vincent D'Onofrio. What a great actor Vincent D'Onofrio is, and a really a really interesting triangular love story, but very kind of anti Castro, which at the time in the early '90s was not quite the sentiment, you know, it was particularly, the sentiment was more sort of more pro-Castro, except in Miami, except in Little Havana, where it was still anti-Castro. But that's where this movie was written by a woman named Cynthia Cedre, who was a Cuban immigrant, and she was telling a story from a different point of view. It was interesting, all of the, the, the in Havana, we were called the Las Gusanas, which I think is the like the ants, the insects. I forget exactly the exact trend, but, you know, they they didn't hold us in a very high regard, you know, for having worked on this, you know, sort of what they considered to be anti-Castro type type movie. But I mean, hey, it was it was, it was a good, good movie, and Jill was you know really quite a good director, you know, out of Australia and had done quite a few movies and really quite good with her cast. And after that, I went to work at, at, I got hired at Sony Pictures for a few years to run two, like what they called new technology divisions. The first was IMAX 3D movies. This is back in the early 90s. And then the other one was interactive movies. You know, this is like, again, you know, years ahead of all of these things that were happening. Sony was starting a, a new kind of, urban retail motion picture building environment and to anchor the retail and the theaters they would they was the metroplexes there's, there's one at, at lincoln center it's probably still there in new york city there was one in san francisco called the metrion and the idea behind it for sony was to anchor them with 3d theaters and, and do 3D movies that they could run during the daytime and IMAX 3D, which was just beginning to take off as a production format, where you wore these these great IMAX 3D goggles that had sound built into them. 
And so you'd not only have 3D picture, but you'd have 3D sound and worked with these dinosaur 3D cameras that IMAX had built with with split, you know, split mirror lens, you know, you know, two cameras shooting at the same time, you know, through a split mirror. And the sound was great because when you put these these headphones on it, you could, you know, the, one of the things that they did was they one of the tests was they gave you a haircut and you could hear the of the scissors going around the back of your head from your right ear to your left ear, you know? So it was like, okay, well, how do they advance the movie going experience? It's not like not only amazing 3d picture, but also at the same time, 3d sound as well. And so Peter Gruber had set this up and it was part of the, like a Mickey Schulhoff who was running Sony at the time was one of his endeavors to do all this and they were looking for all of these new experiences to bring into these retail spaces along with the theaters you know which like microsoft had a space and they were doing gaming stuff and trying to come up with new stuff to take advantage of the new computer technology that was becoming available from gaming and ride film and other things of this nature and so i went to move back to la for a while and we worked with a group out of new york called interfilm and they had made a movie at Interfilm. Anyway, it was the, the interactive movie stuff was done on Laserdisc. And they came up with this technique of putting joy, sort of hand sticks, outfitting small theaters with hand sticks with a three choice button. It was like, you know, red, green, and blue, or red, yellow, and blue, or something. And it was, it was interactive storytelling. So you would watch a movie and then the audience, you'd come to an arterial branch and the audience would get to vote. And would you want it to go left, right or center? Which which story did you want to follow? And they, the, Bijan, a guy named Bob Bijan came up with this, a very bright guy, not a, more of a technologist than a filmmaker, came up with this. Um, he did a launched a first movie that they showed at some of the theaters. I think it was at the bicycle, something at the bicycle messenger, something like that. But it was it was interesting because it changed the movie theater environment and it changed it from Shh, be quiet or watching a movie to more of a sporting type thing. Because when it came to people voting, they got vocal about which way to go. So from an interactive storytelling of which there there was, I read a lot about this a few years ago and it never took off because I don't think people are really interested in it. You know, people are more interested in, you know, linear storytelling. And it's it's kind of complicated to tell a multilinear story because they tend to be kind of arterial, like a tree. You're always branching off, you know, from the, the tree itself, but you always have to come back in again to move the story forward. Because otherwise you're like, you know, a half hour movie, you're generating, you know, four hours of material. So it wasn't it wasn't particularly satisfying, but it, the kids liked it. And kids liked it in a, you know, kind of a Saturday matinee type environment back then. And we made a couple other movies. I brought in Bob Gale, who was Bob Zemeckis' writing and producing partner on the Back to the Future movies. And Bob came up with a story called I'm Your Man, which was all about a revenge type story, which was sort of interesting. It's like, you know, somebody, somebody done me wrong, so you go see this, this guy. And he, I may be getting my titles mixed up, but... Anyway, and Bob did, did something. But but on the IMAX 3D movies, we worked with uh, Jean-Jacques Henault, 
who had done the bear and quest for fire. And there was always this kind of director who was always interested in pushing the storytelling and technology forward. And he came up with an idea, which was great. I spent a lot of time with Jean-Jacques talking about all this. And he had made a movie called, um, I think it's called Aeropostal, but it was about the early days of the airmail service in South America. And it was with the, it was back when Saint Exupere was a flyer. He was the, again, I'm going to, my, you know, he had wrote, written The Little Prince and, and he was a, he was a, a, a pilot and they used to fly across the Andes from Santiago, Chile to Buenos Aires. And this was the story of one of the pilots who went down, you know, in these old prop planes, he took off from Santiago, flying the mail to Buenos Aires. And in the middle of the Andes, his plane went down and he had to walk out, you know, and still delivered the mail. It's one of those stories. But, but so, so it's like, so why is this a good movie for IMAX 3D? Well, because it, 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 you're flying, first of all, which is an amazing experience at IMAX 3D. To be flying in a plane over mountaintops is just remarkable. And the other part is that once you sort of crash, you're in this incredible natural environment of mountaintops and peaks and valleys. And it's it's a, you know, a great survival story in 3D showing somebody like walking out of the Andes back to civilization and to his wife and her, you know, and his life again. So it, it's, uh, you know, it was tried to combine all of these elements that would work for visual storytelling, you know, oral, like AUR, oral storytelling with sound, you know, with wind and airplane noise and stuff like that. And, you know, and then the, 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 the human element, which is, is somebody having to, you know, get themselves out of this situation and back to their wife who they think about constantly while they're, you know, trying to trudge out of the, of the mouse. It was, it's a true story and it was really an amazing effort that this man made. And it's good. I don't know if you could ever see it again on, in, in 3d, I don't, you know, who knows, maybe IMAX has still got the prints, but it's like, it was a double projection system and, but a, you know, a really good movie. I went to New York City for the first time in 1995, and I went to the Sony Theater at Lincoln Center and saw that film. Yeah, that oh, was amazing. Did. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, cool. Well, then you, there you go. That was that was the movie that I, you know, helped get you know made and produced, and uh, you know, it was it was interesting. I remember we were, I remember being at Sony and being an executive at the time, and and I remember you know. You know, it was like, do we make this movie? Do we not make this movie? You know, what should we do? What should we do? And I said to myself, I said, you know, it's like, it's like, what the fuck am I doing here? If I'm here to make a movie, go make a movie. You know, let's just go do it. You know, let's just do it. You know, it's like, why not? I mean, there are all these other studio executives trying to get pictures made and nobody was making movies at the time. And, you know, I remember, you know, being, you know, sitting in production meetings, trying to get the movie greenlit. And I remember, you know, Peter Goober playing like the, the devil's advocate against me. About, well, what can we make this movie for? We're just going to go out and waste $14 million and who's going to see it? And he was he was testing me. He was testing me as the, the studio executive to inspire him with my enthusiasm for why we should go make this movie. You know, I remember those m meetings, you know, specifically. 
you know, so I had to, you know, get him. You know, and he was excited about making the movie. He wanted to see if I was as, as excited as he was to get the film made. And and we were. You remember, it was like Elizabeth McGovern and Val Kilmer and another another young actor who never, never went on. Hey, there you go. You got it. It was Craig Shepard. Anyway, the movie went into production and then it went into post. But at that time, my wife and I decided that we weren't crazy about being in L.A., yeah, you need life decisions that we make along the way in our careers. And I got an offer from Electronic Arts to go work for them and help them go into the interactive movie business, which, you know, in retrospect, turned out to be a huge mistake. And so I left the movie business for a while and I went to work in the video game business, which I shouldn't have done, you know, because my, my, my heart was in making movies. Not in video. I never liked video games. But I thought it was an opportunity, and they were talking about a new startup, and you know, video games were all the rage at the moment. It was a chance to move back up to the Bay Area again and get out of L.A., and et cetera, et cetera. And I left, and then a couple of years later, both of those divisions that I had helped start, you know, fell apart. And nothing ever happened with them. They made one other, you know, one other 3D movie. I don't know if you ever saw the uh, the uh, what was the second one called? It was actually a lovely movie. Director named Steve Lowe made for them it was about a, a stowaway on a boat from russia who is young kid who escapes russia and comes to new york to find his family who had immigrated like 30 40 years earlier and what was kind of nice about it was that it got to show new york and it was supposedly an anchor piece for that new york theater and also talked to you know american story talking about immigration but the pretty thing about it was the the, the conceit was that the he has an ocarina and he remembers this tune that had always been in the family for 30 years lovely tune that he could play on the ocarina and as he lands in new york and you know with the stowaway and with some help from some of the sailors gets off the boat and makes his way into new york city and starts trying to find his way to wherever the and all he has this was the nice thing about the movie all he has is these old 3d stills were all the rage back at the turn of the century and all he has are these 3d stills and a little sort of handheld 3d you know viewer that when you you know put the the, the, the two matched slides in and you look at it through the viewer you get to see a 3d image and so he's got images of new york from like the 19 teens of what it looked like then. And that's how he's trying to navigate his way to toward where his family's supposed to be. And people are like, well, I don't recognize this, but other people are saying, oh yeah, go here, go here. As he gets closer and closer. And as he's finally on the street, which is almost unrecognizable from the slides, he hears the music, his family song playing. And he knows that he's, he's reconnected with his family so, you know, these movies were only like 20, 25 minutes long, but, you know, it was a, it was really a, I thought it was a nice story, but it didn't do, do particularly well. I think it did okay. But uh, anyway, both of those businesses didn't quite, you know, there wasn't, you know, the interactive movie, they could have tried to do something, but they didn't really want to put a lot of, you know, sink a lot of money into it put a lot of effort into to trying to make it work. They, you know, they needed a champion and they didn't really have one to try and make it happen. And uh, it was kind of a difficult business, you know, looking back on it, you've kind of figure out ways how you could have made it happen. But anyway, I left and I went to electronic arts. I stayed there for, 
you know, a little while, then left with somebody, one of the big executives from EA to start another startup in the video game business and stayed with him for a couple of years and venture capital backed who, and they ran out of patience for where we were trying to do some new and interesting stuff. And they kind of ran out of patience on doing it. And then I left there. And a few years after that, I went to work at uh, Tippett Studio and helping run Tippett Studio because I had known Phil from Empire and Jedi. And he, he, they wanted to grow the studio and stabilize the work that they were doing. And for me, it was a good opportunity because it was in Berkeley where I was living and my son was, you know, in, you know, elementary and junior high school, a good timing for me to be at home as opposed to living the peripatetic lifestyle of a, you know, movie producer traveling around the globe. I didn't, you know, had been there, done that. No, thank you. Let's be at home for a while and, you know, help my wife raise a family. So, did that and stayed there for a while and then left and a few years ago produced another low budget movie that we did in San Francisco called Pushing Dead, which was a million dollar production about a man in his late thirties, early forties with AIDS, learning how to kind of adjust to living with AIDS and you know it's kind of a dark comedy. It was it was sort of a fun movie, first time director named Tom Brown and we had uh, Danny Glover was in it, and uh, a few, you know, other other people, lesser actors, names I'm, I'm sort of forgetting at the moment, but never had much of any much of a theatrical released, and it's available now on Amazon. It's not a bad movie, but it was uh, it was okay. And now I'm kind of retired, you know, as I, you know, move into my late sixties. You spent so much time in those early days working in San Francisco only to come back to it. I love it. Never, you know, would always go to LA to work from time to time, you know, and be there for, you know, a year and a half, six months, three months, whatever, you know, over the time. And, you know, I was LA, I was very, you know, familiar with LA, but it was where I wanted to be and, you know, raise a family, spend my life. I just never, LA just never did much for me. Just didn't didn't care to live down there. But me and my brother was there. My mom and dad moved out and lived down there. They all wanted me to stay and be down there. But I just I just I could I I couldn't find any kind of spiritual sustenance living down there. And then you know what happens is that when you're in L.A. and if you don't live in L.A. and you're working, people in L.A. kind of resent that you don't live there. It's like, well, I have to live here. Why don't you have to live here? You know, there's a little bit of that. Uh, you know, that kind of quality about it. So. You know, those things, uh, those things happen. But yeah, it was a pretty, it's a pretty interesting uh, career filled with all sorts of stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. 